Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail! Bonus edition! <laughs> we got a few extra minutes this week. Let's have some more letters. Yeah, because we don't make enough podcasts, apparently. <laughs> we need more content. Anyway, here at the Critically Acclaimed Network, We've Got Mail is the place where you control the conversation. You write us in letters at criticallyacclaimed.net, and we figured that... With everything going on in the world right now, everyone's isolated and maybe feeling a little lonely, that now would be a good time to do an extra episode of the podcast in which we reach out and talk to you directly through your emails. Yeah. Uh, so again, this is an opportunity for you to ask us questions, recommendations. You want to share uh, your lists of the best movies of the decade uh, or the year, even if we still want to get on some of those. Uh, this is a great opportunity for that. And Luca is on the counter. Whitney, read an email. <laughs> okay. Um, Luca. Luca is the cat. Luca is a naughty cat. Luca, you're the worst. Here's a a letter from Craig. Hello, Craig. Uh, It says, hi, Bibbs and Whitney. Uh, It's Craig here from Sydney, Australia. Uh, I'm MovieBuff94 on Twitter. Sorry in advance for the long letter. Oh, never mind. Uh, And terrible grammar. Oh, never mind. Uh, I hope you can read it properly. First of all, as I've told you on Twitter, you guys, before this podcast, uh, this podcast gives me great joy in life when I'm feeling down on myself. And I want to thank you both for inspiring me to start the process of making a podcast about movies and writing a blog. That's fantastic. Well, good for you. Keep it up. That's really wonderful. Uh, Coming from uh, from a man who has been dealing with depression and anxiety for many years since early high school, movies and now podcasts like yours have helped me fight it and deal with it. Well, I'm glad we can be there for you. Yeah, That's movies, wonderful. listen, yeah. I, I have depression and anxiety as well, and I've also been suffering from it for many, many years. And yeah, art helps, the community around the art form helps, and making podcasts, I think, helps too. It gives us a lot of focus. So I hope mm-hmm. it, I hope it's good for you as well. It's a good way just to keep the, the rapport going. Well, when and... you're talking about movies, you know, you're talking about something that you love and maybe you feel confident about, and the things that give me depression and anxiety don't come up as often. Or if they do, they're usually in a very positive and constructive light because we're talking about the way that art helps us deal with them. Yeah. Uh, he, he says, uh, sorry for rambling, but here's my top 25 of the decade. Cool. This is presumably 2010 to 2019. I think those are uh, generally the guidelines. Yeah, uh, which uh, was tough as I made a list at the end of last year that was the 100 of the, best 100 of the decade mm. because I'm a cheat. <laughs> Not... Uh, uh, you know what? It's actually have, yeah. It's not like, all of them have something about them. Obviously, uh, well, you know what? Coming up with a list of the best whatever mm-hmm. is actually really difficult when you have seen a lot of movies. Mm-hmm. When you've only seen a hundred action movies, coming up with your you know yeah, top, top ten, 10 or, or your top twenty is easy. When you've seen a whole bunch of movies over the course of a decade, narrowing them down to even twenty five is hard. It should be hard unless you manage mm-hmm. to only see crap. Luca. Which is possible. Luca. Oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, here's the list. Uh, oh, my God. William, you can hear this. Uh, oh. Number 25 was I Saw the Devil. Ooh. It's an interesting choice. Uh, number 24, Hush. Uh, 23, Game Night. Well, hold on. Let's talk about this for a second. So I saw uh, well, it's, we got 25 here. But, uh, All right. Well, I Saw the Devil's cool. Hush mm-hmm. is a great uh, uh, riff on Wait Until Dark. I'm a big fan. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Game Night, which we just talked about Game Night on our uh, our Firefly podcast. And we were talking about so. really well-told stories and the way that they deal with mm-hmm. characters and morality and stuff, and mm-hmm. Game Night is a great Game Night is company. hilarious. And uh, number yeah. 22, The Kids Are All Right. Yeah, that's a good one. It's, it's it, all right. Yeah. It didn't come up on a lot of lists at the end of the decade, but it's very well acted. It's, it's really well acted. It deals, I think, with 
something very topical, uh, very frankly, and I didn't didn't think it got enough credit for that. No, um, but it was only for Best Picture, but yeah. then it just kind of, you know, got knocked out of the conversation yeah, for a yeah. while. Uh, number 21, The Loved Ones. Did you see The Loved Ones? No. Horror movie? Um, oh, yeah, I did hear about it, but I never saw that one. Okay. Uh, 20, Train to Busan, I haven't seen. Great zombie movie. Uh, number 19, Avengers Endgame. Uh, there's a yeah. sentence about this one. I know it's cliche to say this, but it made me feel like a kid reading my favorite comic book. I, I, I uh, think we said this last time we talked about it. I can't remember the context, but Avengers Endgame mm. gives you everything you wanted. Just all, all the combinations, all the fights, yep. all the... Everything the, the, you want. It, maybe it doesn't surprise us very mm-hmm. much, but it's, we've invested a lot in that franchise over the course of over a decade. Oh, Endgame is a of, really good conclusion at, to at, it. At the very least, you invested a lot of time. Uh, yeah. Number 18 is Carol. Oh, uh, a great Carol. movie. Yeah. Number 17, Spotlight. Excellent choice. Yeah. A good Best Picture choice winner. I think a lot of... Once it won Best Picture, it's another one that people just stop talking about, it's, but it's really... Rather excellent. It's, it's exquisitely crafted on every level. It just doesn't call a lot of attention to itself the way that some of the other yeah. films that are the best of the well, decade. It's, it's but really I, downbeat yeah. and it's kind of uh, lo- yeah. kind of lo-fi looking. Like they tried to make it look really drab. So yeah. you're not going to go well, in expecting a lot. It's of It's got flash. a 1970s kind of look. Like mm. all the president's men isn't mm. the best. I mean, it's actually. Hmm. Sergio is on the counter. What are you doing to me tonight? It's actually like incredibly well crafted on every level, hmm. and a lot of the incredible visual tricks in all the presidents men don't call attention to themselves. Yeah, but Sergio, come on, buddy. <laughs> I, I uh, number tonight. number sixteen is thirteenth. The documentary film. I really like thirteenth. Oh, thirteenth is. Um, I think it's. I think thirteenth is whether or not it's the best movie of the decade. I think it's one of the few movies of the decade that everyone should see. Every, yeah, this literally is, everyone like should one, see it. It's one they need to show in high schools. Yeah. Uh, number fifteen, three identical. Strangers. Oh, I didn't see this. Uh, I didn't see that one either. It's a documentary, right? Yeah. Uh, 14, Moonlight. Ah, oh, great movie. Uh, 13, Get Out. Yep. Number 12, Uncut Gems. Uh, I like that there's one that's new. Yeah. I like having the 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 confidence to say that this thing that came out recently, mm. I feel mm. confident in my own taste, in my own capacity mm. to understand greatness, that Uncut Gems is indeed one of the best films of the decade, and I'm actually wouldn't even fight that. That movie's fucking awesome. It's 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 a panic attack, but yeah, yeah it's, it's really quite good. Yeah. Um, number eleven, what we do in the shadows. Ah, oh, one of the best comedies of the decade, Sergio. Uh, I'm looking at you, buddy. <laughs> number ten is Brooklyn. Uh, uh, number, okay, sweet uh, movie. Sweet movie is very good. Yeah. Um, I remember watching Brooklyn uh, with uh, with my wife, and we were expecting like the really stupid melodramatic thing to happen. Mm-hmm. It's like I'm going to get shipped off to war, and I'm pregnant. Yeah, that never happened. No, it's like, like you... it never had that big bomb, and it was such a relief. Yeah, it's, it's to just the... have it be her life. It's one of the things. Like I, I liked the opening of Atonement, but I hated where Atonement went because I thought it just got like <laughs> kind of hammy and the, over the top. The, the first act of Atonement is, is first really train. stellar. Yeah. So like I feel like I mean Brooklyn isn't the same story by any stretch, but just like it's Sir Sharon and it's period. Okay, you yeah, think yeah. it's going to have a similar vibe? No, it's just a very mm. honest, earnest story. Mm. Uh, number nine, Ex Machina. Great movie. And uh, he says, this, is, this movie is the definition of great sci-fi to me, great acting, but the atmospheric tone is what gets me. Uh, number eight, How to Train Your Dragon 2. Hey, that, that is the best <laughs> in the series, I My think. My favorite uh, and one of the best trilogies of all time. I love the third as well, but I know you guys don't, and that's cool. Yeah. But the second one is so ballsy with its storytelling, and it's beautiful at the same time. I think the first How to Train Your Dragon is a great kids mm-hmm. movie. I think the second How to Train Your Dragon is a great movie. Yeah. And I think the third one is okay. It it's, just, it's I, don't, a, I don't think it sticks the landing. I don't think because the second it's, one, it's, the, it's the dramatic so much, heights are so high, it never quite hits them again. The third one is so much of like a fond farewell. It's like they forgot to have a movie in there. Yeah. Um, number seven, The Nightingale. Uh, oh, that's that an excellent choice. Yeah, awesome. harrowing film that reminded me uh, about my country and how far Sergio. we've come, but also the impact of the story uh, and the 
uh, and the journey of both the leads destroyed me, but it's so beautifully shot and acted, that's a bonus. Number six, The Social Network. Okay. That is, I mean, that's kind it's of, almost, a, a, it's, it's, it's almost, almost a, a film, yeah, it's a film of the generation at this point. Yeah. A masterpiece that is still and maybe more relevant today, but I'm biased when it comes to Fincher as he's my favorite filmmaker working today. Surge. Uh, number five, another Fincher film, Gone Girl. Uh, Excuse the language, but I fucking love this movie. It's Gone bonkers. Girl rules. Gone Girl, yeah. is, it, it really grows every year on me. Like, it's such an exquisitely... It's, it's like the girl with the dragon tattoo or the silence of the lambs. It's like taking that airport novel sleaze and just sort of raising it up a little bit. Well, and I think there's actually, like, a lot it actually has to say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, um... But yeah, it's also just exceptionally well-crafted, mm. suspenseful, a lot of great reveals. And, yeah. and Rosamund Pink should have won an Oscar. Absolutely. She's fucking For awesome. Sure. She should have at least... I don't um, even think she was nominated. So, sure. yeah. So, better than Moonlight, better than Get Out, better than Uncut Gems. Number four, uh, 22 Jump Street. <laughs> you know what? That love, movie yeah. is funny as hell. It, it is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I, need, I think I need to rewatch it. Uh, number three is The Wolf of Wall Street. Great movie. Uh, number two, You Were Never Really Here. I love this that movie. This movie about depression got me real good. And number one is per- The Perks of Being a Wallflower. You know... I Which has, if, has an enormous cult around it. Uh, really this movie not only made me cry for many hours, including in the theater and on the way home from the cinema, I couldn't talk to my parents why I was so shaken by this movie. I realized this movie... Uh, oh, excuse me. I related to this movie so much, and this movie is, in my opinion, isn't talked about enough. Uh, yours sincerely, Craig. Well, thanks for writing in, Craig. Uh, that was... Um, that is a good eclectic choice. I always I like a, a, appreciate when uh, you know a top ten or a top twenty five has like a good, good variety in it. Like well, has I mean, a, a I, lot of different kinds of movies. I mean, look, it. any I think a lot of top tens, top twenty fives are going to have some movies that we all recognize. But mm-hmm. whenever like a movie, I, I I always appreciate it when a critic or, or anyone really puts a movie on that list. Says, you know, this is for posterity. This is the best of the decade. Mm-hmm. And my number one is not on anyone else's list. And Perks being Wallflower, mm-hmm. it didn't make my list. It's a very good movie. I think if I'd seen that movie when I was younger, it would have hit me a lot harder. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw a movie when I was, I think, was already in my thirties. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's about high schoolers. They're, it's about high school. It's about, yeah, it's yeah. about uh, uh, a lot of teen depression. Um, I don't want to ruin like their the the whole story, but mm-hmm. we find out what the protagonist has been going through eventually, and it's very uh, well, it's very dark. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's handled really, really beautifully well, I think. And, yeah, yeah it's. I think that's a really bold choice. I think that's a really good choice. Um, again, not my choice, but mm. I would be like, you know, I can see that. <laughs> that's a, that, yeah, okay. Mm. Good for you. Like, that's a, right. that's a good, bold choice. It's not one of those bold choices where you're just like, and my number one film of the decade is The Human Centipede 2. No. <laughs> you're just being provocative. You're being a, yeah. yeah, no, that one, you need, you better have one hell of an explanation. Yeah. Well, and, and so, this is, we, this uh, is what I just get, yeah. This is something we, we iterated a lot at the, at the beginning of the year. When we make these sorts of lists as critics, we understand, a lot of critics understand that... While we can make these lists sort of intended to sort of stand uh, the test of time to be for posterity, we understand that they're actually just lists of recommendations. Of course they are. That's all they can can be. So we can write down the best films of the decade as popular opinion might have it or as a lot of other critics might agree with. But I think it's much more useful and I think it's much more interesting and fun to come up with lists of great films of the decade that really could be considered the best of the decade, but that you wouldn't expect or many uh, people haven't seen. 
So I think that is something that causes a lot of people to think critics are contrarians. Yeah. But we're not contrarians. We're trying to introduce you to more. We're trying to, you know, we're not saying, oh, you know, poo-poo on these really popular movies. Here's what you really ought to watch because that's what real quality is. What we're saying is <laughs> you've seen all those other ones. Yeah. We don't give a damn about posterity you, in this moment. We you, care about selling these movies you, to you. Well, so, we don't. Not well, selling. selling that, but, that's, know, not what we're, that's not our job. But we want to encourage you to see movies you might otherwise have seen. I, I, I thought that selling as a, as a I metaphor there. I, I, uh, I just want to make sure no one misinterpreted right. it. I, I've worked for places where editors have like told me the purpose of a top ten list is to validate the reader's pre-existing opinion, and that's that, that's not what it should be. Like you should be able to have your opinion, and that's cool. And then yeah, it's nice to see someone agrees with you that so and so is one of the best movies of the decade. But it's even cooler, in my estimation, to find out that either this movie you've never heard of mm-hmm. from someone who hopefully their, your opinion their their opinion you respect. Uh, says is that good and then makes you want to go see it and maybe you do see it and maybe you see something wonderful or a movie that you didn't get or didn't like or mm-hmm. didn't understand or just that someone had a different take on it makes that list and it makes you go should I see Perks of Being a Wallflower again? Should, yeah, did I yeah. miss what made that movie great? <laughs> and that's good advice. Mm-hmm. Go, go see that movie again. I, oh, I would sure. say uh, any mo- again there's a couple of movies on the list I hadn't seen. All the ones I had See those movies. Well, I've been meaning to get to Train to Busan. Uh, I, I know that's. Cool, I, I've heard nothing but good things about it. That yeah. one and One Cut of the Dead, these two zombie films from a couple recent years, are just ones I've been meaning to dig into. I, I haven't, haven't seen One Cut of the yet. Dead yet, but Train to Busan is pretty All fucking right. cool, I'm not going to lie. Um, here is a letter from Ori. Hello, Ori. Hi, Ori. Uh, Ori says, I didn't care for Book Smart and Ladybird. <gasps> what? Um, you. Get oh. it? No, it's fine. <laughs> we're, we're not those kinds of critics, No, no, so. no, 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 uh, no, no, I, I happen to love Booksmart and Lady Bird, but um, let's, let's hear what he has I to say. I think they're both very well made. Right, uh, let's hear what Ori has to say. Uh, both are two films you highly recommended, and it angered me that I didn't like them because I felt that the movie wanted to convey modern ideas but failed at a storytelling or on a cinematic language level to express the ideas that you t- two clearly connected with. Again, I'm not writing this to fight. But to show a different opinion for someone who wants a world like what you want. Booksmart doesn't have any bite, therefore it doesn't work. The film is focused on the healthy friendship between two girls and that it is fine, but that is not very intriguing. The night they go on is not very cra- is not very crazy, yet it seems to be for the protagonists. The film didn't make the night feel crazy. The only point it makes is at the beginning when Molly confronts the other girls who trash talk her. Uh, this is the... Um, uh, the rich girl, right? I think. Well, the, let's read that. Molly, yeah. Let's um, read because it could be uh, the other girls who trash talk about her, and she finds out that uh, she also got into good colleges. Her, reali- oh, yeah. her realizing that people she thought just party simply have their life in uh, uh, simply have their life in order and aren't solely dedicated to the one thing, and therefore have a healthier life in high school is the point of the movie. Yes. Uh, instead, it's at the beginning, and therefore the character had no arc to accomplish. On top of that, the girls are very smart, yet aside from them going to the library to find the address of a house where the party is, they don't ever have to use their smarts to get out of a situation or how to accomplish their goal. Uh, If you would indulge me with my rewrite, the high school the characters go to is meant to be a progressive school where the students are more comfortable than their parents are talking about their problems and being open about their feelings and sexualities. If, due to her obsession with achieving academically, Molly's feeling of superiority over the other classmates would make her more like the young alt-right we have today, 
who reject progressive thinking. Then she has an arc to go through that she would have to think she can either make a better make a better party or be the coolest person at a party only to see that being obsessed at only being better than someone else is not as gratifying as making time for others and yourself. Just a thought. Um, uh, is that the end of the book smart part? That, uh... Look, because we, I think we should talk about that first. There's a, there's, a there's a little bit more, but yeah. Um, All right. I, the, uh, yeah. What, what you're describing about sort of her not having an arc, uh, that's what in screenwriting terms they call the inciting incident. That's the thing yeah. that sort of makes her realize that she needs to go on this quest. And the whole... Uh, what I really liked about this movie is about it's about these really super academic kids who have rejected the party lifestyle and now feel a final desperate need to get in something that they had previously rejected. And they're so bad at it that comedy ensues. I, I actually think uh, – and, and I, I, I disagree with your mm. criticism, but I actually disagree with – I, I think what you think the purpose of the movie's plot was. Mm. Because I don't think it's about someone who is trying to be better than everybody. I think it's about someone who learns at the beginning of the movie that she wasn't. Yeah, and she, now... Who, who always assumed she was better than everybody. Yeah, and yeah. now... And, and you know, that, that wasn't her being wicked. That was her being closed-minded. Mm. And now her mind is open, but now it's a ticking clock movie. It is not a movie about proving her superiority. It is a movie about, oh, God, we technically only have one night left in high school. Mm. We have to fit in all the cool stuff we wanted to do this whole time and didn't because we thought college was more important. We thought the only way to get in college was to ignore all that stuff and focus on academics. We have one night to do it all. Mm. And I think the fact that their experience, which is... A little crazy. I mean, they do. I think they do acid or shrooms or uh, you know, it's, they, it's some sort of drug, and they turn into the dolls. Yeah, yeah they do. They they, go, they do hallucinogenics. They do some crazy stuff. Mm. But I think the fact that it isn't as crazy as, say, you know, Bachelor Party or mm. one of these other like or one the, night of craziness the, kind the, of films. The film that was most readily compared to was um, Super Bad. Yeah, I think the fact that it didn't like get as crazy as any of those things is not so much a fault with the film, although I can see why you might think that. Mm. For me, I find that indicative of the kinds of people these kids are. Yeah, they don't, yeah. Depending on the time of night, they don't even want to do it that bad. <laughs> this is just them trying to have one bit of a crazy thing. And mm. frankly, the fact that initially it's actually really hard for them to do anything fun at all because they have no experience at this mm. and they don't know where the cool parties are or how to get in with the cool kids. Exactly. Yeah, I um, think that's relevant. I think that speaks to their character. I think it's the fact that it's lo-fi mm. is a selling point, not a flaw. It, it speaks to their character. And I think it, it's, and this is why I sort of vaunted the film so highly. I think it, it's one, one of those films that, uh, and we talk about John Hughes movies. Our generation talks about John Hughes movies in these mm -hmm. terms. It's a film that's sort of giving voice to a new generation in cinema. Yeah. Uh, it is really kind of narrowing in on the way a certain generation is now speaking and thinking. Yeah. These people are really just naturally progressive speaking people. <laughs> and they're actually a lot more responsible than the people in, say, Animal House. Who are just you know good? Yeah, the people <laughs> that's a good in thing. That's, the people that's, in Animal House are, are fucking monsters. Even the heroes. <laughs> the heroes are. Which ones are the heroes? I don't even know in right? that movie. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life. Yes. <laughs> The evil Dean is right. Wow. He's the only one I'm on the side of. I, I'm not. I'm yeah. not cool with the fat shaming. Okay, not not the fat shaming, but you know the only problem <laughs> the only problem that the dean has is he doesn't expel everyone from his college immediately. Yeah, because they're horrible. He just needs to overhaul everybody. Yeah. 
Anyway, I hate Animal House. Animal House uh, is not <laughs> aged well at all. It's not aged anyway. well at all. But I feel like uh, I feel like yeah, Booksmart is about uh, people who are unprepared to deal with wildness, uh, trying to start it themselves and failing, mm-hmm. and succeeding to a certain degree, they but get, finding they what they to need a point. to. And yeah. the big climax is actually about how their friendship is tested at the end of all yeah. of this, and how kind of falling outside of their comfort zone really put them at odds in a lot of ways. But the thing is, and I think the thing that can happen here, and I can actually understand, um, you know, mm-hmm. maybe not really acting to the film, because if you think of the film structurally, I'm only going to look at, like, sort of mm. the genre precedence for it. It's a one wild, crazy night kind of movie, you know, like After Hours or something like that. And you realize that, okay, this is pretty tame mm-hmm. by those standards. Okay, fine. But that's only one standard by which we can judge the film. When I'm watching a movie, and I mean any movie, and I'm not digging it, my first thought isn't this movie must suck. Mm. I've, I've trained myself to do this as a film critic. My first thought is, is there an angle I can look at this film from which it is good mm. or brilliant? Or how, 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 what are the filmmakers saying to me? Yeah, like, like, what, how, how are they like, saying this thing? Okay, to like me? maybe this movie is, I'm trying to think of an example. I'm, I'm kind of blanking, but mm. like, okay, maybe this horror movie isn't all that scary, but mm. is it scary because it's not hitting one of my specific anxieties? If I had an anxiety that was shared by one of the protagonists in this movie, mm. would I be terrified? And sometimes the answer is yes. It's just I don't happen to have a phobia of, I don't know, water mm. or whatever, heights or whatever. Like, I, that could be something yeah, but, that could... Uh, but and in, then in all of a fact, sudden I'm, I'm looking mm. at a movie from a different angle. That doesn't mean there's always an angle. Sometimes there isn't. Sometimes mm. the movie does just suck. <laughs> at least from one perspective. But sometimes there are perfectly valid perspectives that we can key into yeah. by watching the movie from a slightly different angle. Yeah, 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 And I think it's possible to redirect that on the fly if we're aware enough and giving the movie some credit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Ori does explain... Um, a film that does do what Booksmart wants to do and does it a lot better, has, which and which has been completely forgotten, is a film called The To-Do List. I still haven't it's, seen that. It's a film directed by Maggie Carey. It stars Aubrey Plaza, who is an overachiever high schooler, who realizes that she is going to finish high school a virgin while all of her class hasn't. The idea that her classmates would accomplish something that she didn't horrifies her, so she makes a list of sexual acts she has to achieve by the end of high school and goes on a, a very methodical way about achieving them. On the way, she learns that her friends are not as experienced as they said they are. She learns the truths and lies young people say when it comes to sexual interaction. It's funny, charming, and very uplifting movie with a lot of crassness, and it also has a point. Um, okay, but you see I, there... I, I, can't, uh, I can't compare the two because I haven't seen that movie. I haven't movie, seen but, it, but, um, but judging from that description, I can just say this, because mm-hmm. what it sounds like is that the to-do list is someone who is approaching wild and craziness from a methodical perspective. Mm-hmm. Booksmart is about people who are methodical who are trying to abandon that. That, that, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, mm. so I think if you're trying to like say, like, oh, they're not methodical, okay, I don't think that's what this movie is. Mm. But if there is another movie just like it, and maybe you're comparing it, maybe the movie wasn't intended to be compared yeah, to the okay. to-do list. Maybe that wasn't an, uh, an inspiration. Yeah. Uh, Ori also has a few uh, words about Lady Bird. Yeah, uh, Lady Bird is well-written, directed, and acted. Uh, I agree. Okay. Uh, but I couldn't connect to it. The only reason I could think of is that I'm a guy, and as a guy, the stakes in the film didn't connect to me. They are small stakes, which is fine, but there have been hundreds of movies where the stakes are small but meaningful to the characters, particularly to high schoolers in films. Uh, what was missing was the feeling of urgency in accomplishing them. Just uh, saw the main character being distressed about getting it. 
very much like real life, but I didn't feel like I was able to. Im- I was I was able to embrace with it cinematically. That bothered me. Mm. Uh, can't it be just showing the life of someone with no filter or cinematic tricks can make me empathize with them? I connected very well to a movie about women by female characters. I love Tuca and Bertie, Angel at My Table, Wonder Woman. We need to talk about Kevin, about mother anxiety. It bothers me that uh, there is art that is hailed for showing people who I am not usually exposed to, and I don't feel anything. What do you think? A big fan and supporter uh, of... Of all that you do. Oh, thank you, Ari. Um, uh, these, listen, this is actually a, a really interesting mm. um, issue that I think people need to be I don't know, self-reflective about. Mm. Um, it's easy for us to sympathize with things that we understand. Mm. It is a little bit more difficult to sympathize with things that we don't know about or haven't been yeah. introduced to. And some movies are a window into that. Um, and sometimes a movie leaves us cold and... Even a good movie can leave you cold. Mm. Like I, I, there are movies I've seen that I acknowledge their greatness, and for whatever reason, I don't know. Chinatown doesn't do it for me. Okay, I just, I just can't. I, for whatever reason, I know it's good. I see what they're doing, <laughs> but just I not, just, I'm not invested in it. I don't know. Right. It doesn't work for me. I, 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 yeah. I couldn't articulate it clearly recently because mm. I haven't watched it recently, but. That's one example off the top of my head. Lady Bird is... It's not a very flashy movie. No. That's, this is true. In fact, I think that's kind of by design because it is about Greta... It's semi-autobiographical about Greta Gerwig's youth in Sacramento, California. Not a big, flashy, interesting place. That's the point of the movie. She's yeah. growing up in this kind of dull town. She doesn't have very big ambitions. She can't really articulate her ambitions. And I think that's a very real part of the adolescent experience, no matter who you are, yeah. where you grow up or your, you know, your age or your gender. So I think, uh, that's sort of what Lady Bird was tapping into. And it wasn't about sort of the style of the flourish. Well, it's not about Greta, the plot yeah. either. It's not about urgency. It's not about having mm. her goal is to get to college. That's a general goal, well, her, it's a, but her, it's really important her, to her. her. Her goal is, is essentially... college away from town. It's, it's college away from town. Her goal is to escape. And yeah. that's a very general kind of goal. And you yeah. know, we don't really know. She understands that going to college is going to provide that for her. But how is she going to ex- come to terms with how she feels about her home, about her hometown, about her family, about her mother? Mm-hmm. And A lot of teenagers feel yeah. stifled by their parents, yeah, and but kind not of, every kind parent of, is actually stifling their and kids. And she could just saw herself off, but you know, she A, doesn't have sort of the, the chutzpah to do that, and also she may not want to do that. She may not want yeah. to just sort of sever all ties and leave. I, I really admire Lady Bird. I don't mm. think it made my list of the best of the year when mm. it came out, nor do I think it would if I revisited that list. I think it's an exceptionally well-made film. Mm. For me, when I think about the Ladybird and the uh, the Ladybird, when I think mm. about Ladybird and the, the what it does well, I uh, the two things I think of is one, you think about stakes. First off, when you're thinking about stakes, mm. more more screenwriting term. That's a screenwriting yeah. term, and the idea is that if a story is worth telling, it should mean something to the to the characters. Mm. Some stakes well, well, are really obvious. We have to destroy the Death Star. Mm. We have or, to or cure the virus. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. have to some yeah. There's some big obvious thing that we can all wrap our heads around. Sometimes it's only important to the character. Something like Straight Story, for example, where mm. one old man wants to visit his his brother, who's also very old and dying, and he's several states away, and the old man doesn't have his driver's license anymore, and the only way he can get there is by riding a riding mower. Mm. And the fact that and it he's goes doing really, it, really slow. And yeah. yeah, he could take the bus, but the fact that he's doing it via riding mower means something to him. He's doing it on his own. Mm. That's what matters. Not a lot happens in that movie, but that journey really, really matters. 
The journey in Lady Bird, I think, really matters because when you're an adolescent, everything seems important because you're doing it and feeling it for the first time. So there's a lot of teen movies that have a lot of extra plot, that have a lot of extra stuff going on. I think if you're telling a story about a passionate, smart, interesting mm. teenager who just is experiencing their life, that, that story mm. will be intense. And the other thing I think about is this wonderful scene from the movie Adaptation. Okay. Where uh, Nicolas Cage is talking to Robert McKee. The, played by Brian Cox. Played by Brian Cox. There's a, Robert McKee is uh, uh, one of the writers who uh, writes about how to write screenplays. And he's talking about all these big stories, you know, mm. these war stories and everything. And Nicolas Cage, who thinks he's this great artist, or he's trying to be anyway, uh, says, stands up and con- con- confronts, confronts him. him yeah. And he thinks he's got like this guy. Like, what if he just want to tell a story about real people and where them nothing happens? And Robert McKee shuts him down, and I think rightly so, hmm. because he says, what the hell are you talking about? People are going through stories all the time. Pick up a newspaper. <laughs> People are committing crimes. People are sacrificing themselves hmm. to save their families. People are going through important experiences. Every, every day. Yeah. Every day, everyone's story is important to them. Every day might not feel equally important. Some days might seem humdrum. Hmm. But we're all trying to get through this thing called life, and that can be really, really exciting. So the fact that Lady Bird feels like a slice of life, it feels like it is, the, the, the stakes are simply the stakes of an adolescent trying to live her life on her own. She feels like she's able to live her life on her own. Her mother knows she can't, and she's <laughs> right about that. Mm. And every indeed, every turn shows that Lady Bird isn't actually on the ball and actually has a mm. lot of growing up to do, but... I think that struggle, that daily struggle between wanting to be grown up and not actually being grown up yet is very compelling. And that's yeah. another one where I feel like, again, if you're expecting plot, Ladybird's going to disappoint the shit out of you. Yeah. yeah. But I think mm-hmm. if you, again, there are other angles through which we can enjoy mm-hmm. films. Yeah, I, and I, also sometimes I, they don't work for us no matter yeah, what. There should I, just be something yeah. on the divide. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there are plenty of films that were universally beloved that I just don't connect to. Yeah. I, I mean... Like I've said, I need to revisit Birds of Prey because Br- I yeah. watched Birds of. This is a movie about like a punk rock clown woman who beats guys in the face with a mallet. This sounds amazing. This this is like right <laughs> up my alley. This, is, this should be my jam, and yet I'm just like watching this thing and feeling nothing. So yeah, sometimes, sometimes just, it's just sometimes just the wrong mood that day. Wrong you, mood. You, you um, see something it, about yeah. maybe there, it was I, filmmaking. Maybe something about the editing or something yeah. about the characterization that's just not connecting with me. Um, I'd have to watch it again to really be sure. But um, yeah. Uh, Excuse me while I get highfalutin for a minute, but um, uh, the philosopher David Hume uh, talked about how uh, how human beings are essentially you know just a, a collection of impulses. He was a, a very he was the, the like one of the uh, big champions of empiricism. The, okay. the world has to be measured through the things you can sense through just your senses, and okay. everything else is crap. It's meaningless. I don't uh, agree but, with that, but okay. <laughs> And, you know, any any sort of um, – he spoke out against, you know, religion, things that were sort of metaphysical. And, uh, and any sort of atheist argument you've ever heard kind of all comes from David Hume. Uh, but David Hume fam- famously said – I'm paraphrasing very badly here uh, – that in order to really connect with another person, you can't necessarily talk to another person. Talking to another person is just like coming up against a wall. You can't sense another person's mind. You can talk to them. You can know their story. You can sort of empathize with them. You can fall in love with them. But ultimately, 
in, in the mind of David Hume, you're just sort of two clusters of impulses that are just bouncing off of each other. Well, on, so on um, a literal level, yeah, okay, you'll yeah, never be inside their consciousness. Exactly, okay. and, and on a literal level, that's what he was dealing with, it was yeah. just literal levels. Yeah. But he said, if you really want to get be inside uh, the mind of another human being, you have to go to fiction. He said, if, you want, if, if you're a man and you want to understand a woman, don't talk to a woman, read Jane Austen. Yeah. Uh, if if you're you fiction know, written by a woman, I highly recommend. Presumably, but uh, you yeah, know, just, I, just I, he, to I mean, again, David I don't, Hume I don't certainly even, didn't make that distinction. I, but, I don't uh, even agree with David Hume, but uh, in, in general. But if you're going to go that no. route, at least pick fiction. I, I, I actually agree. I agree with David Hume on all, practically nothing, but yeah. uh, uh, it's. Um, <laughs> He did have this really excellent point on the value of the arts and how when it comes to really connecting with other human beings, to really sort of put your mind in the place of another mind, you can do that through fiction because a fiction is allowing you – is sort of telling you a story in a way where you're actually inserting yourself much more vividly into the mind of another person even though they're an imaginary person. Well, and fiction is also Uh, designed to, you know, integrate. Engross, yeah. Yeah, like basically because, again, if you just like were dumped inside someone's mind, it would probably be too much – to handle, but we design fiction to ease people into our life experiences. That's mm-hmm. why every story has a beginning. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's in media well, maybe they dump you, but usually mm-hmm. they're introducing you to the characters and mm-hmm. teaching you, here's how we're going to view these, this world right now. But I'm, I'm willing to bet that Roger Ebert had read David Hume because mm-hmm. uh, he famously referred to films as empathy machines yeah. and how we are encouraged in film to empathize with these other characters. Now, that's not quite the same as reading a novel. You're not living this, the character the same way because you're in a room watching a screen. Mm-hmm. You're, there's necessarily a divide in cinema. Well, I, th- um, I don't think that's the intention, though, is to make it feel like there isn't a divide. But, the screen is supposed to be a window. It's supposed to be a window, but we're looking at someone, not in someone. Unless you're watching something like Enter the Void. But, you're looking but, but that's through, possible, like, the eyeballs. Like, that's a choice um, we make. Yeah. Uh, but still, that empathy is still there. And I think... You know, you say you're a, you're a guy, or you say you're a guy, and you can't sympathize with a, a movie about a young woman. Well, maybe well, but, just but he, he did you know. clarify that there are stories about young women. He exactly could, so but for some reason Lady Bird for didn't some do reason it. Lady Bird didn't do it for you, and that's fine. I'm not going to say you know well, yeah. how dare you? You need to watch Lady Bird again. It's like right. you already said you didn't like it. I'm not going to force you to watch yeah, it again. I, I explained uh, maybe another way. Maybe you could watch Lady Bird mm-hmm. and enjoy it, but that's no guarantee. There mm-hmm. might just be something that just disconnects. So yeah, um, I, I think. You're understanding, though, what one of the vital functions of, of film is, and uh, you're also understanding when it doesn't quite work for well, you, and I think that's actually a healthy thing to do. Well, I actually think this is actually one of the more interesting things that film criticism does, or any uh-huh. art criticism, really. It's um, when we look at art and we don't get it, or mm-hmm. we don't see it, and we don't maybe uh, connect to it, mm-hmm. film criticism can be a useful way to sort of have what this movie is trying to do kind of translated for you so that now oh now I see mm-hmm. what they're doing and this can be particularly useful in cases where maybe there's a cultural divide where I don't understand why this I don't know this Akira Kurosawa film mm. is so impactful but then I find out more about Japanese culture and all of a sudden things click yeah and so that that can be one thing that film mm. criticism can do it can also simply be Oh, I was looking at it through this particular lens. I was looking at it through a plot lens. Or I was looking at it uh, as a lens of only through this one uh, particular theme that the movie addresses. But maybe the movie isn't so much about that theme as another theme. And when I look at it from this new focus, all of a sudden the movie makes more sense and I can appreciate it more. And it was when I discovered that film criticism gave me the ability to look at movies I'd already seen in a different light and appreciate them differently. Mm. 
that's when I really fell in love with it and wanted to, at least one of my goals was to become a film critic. I remember when I read, um, I got a book, uh, a, f- a textbook about film, film vernacular, film history, film art, uh-huh. uh, that a friend of my mother's had taken a film class in college and she was done. And I was like, can I have this book? And she was like, mm-hmm. cool. And I read it cover to cover. And it was really useful as a great foundation. But what I noticed was, they would even the biggest movies ever. They would maybe have like a paragraph or two mm-hmm. because they're trying to give a broad overview. And then all of a sudden, right in the middle of this book, <laughs> after seeing like you know three paragraphs dedicated to Citizen Kane and like two paragraphs dedicated to Eight and a Half, there's a page and a half dedicated to John Carpenter's They Live, <laughs> and that stood right the fuck out. And all of a sudden, I realized this movie, which I had seen multiple mm. times and liked, all of a sudden, I'm looking at it from a brand new perspective. And mm. how the you know this is a story about how it's a, it's they live as a story about movies in a lot of ways, and it's about mm. how people use art media, media yeah. specifically, but media is mostly comprised of art in some form or another mm. uh, to convey messages, which is why in They Live, when you put on the sunglasses and you can see the world as it really is, you look at a billboard of a sexy lady trying to sell you cigarettes, Mm. all of a sudden, it just translates it, and now you see reproduce. Mm. That's all that... In the end of the day, that's all that message... That's all that message is. All the... Everything you see on a dollar bill, all it's really... You notice it has religious imagery on it? It has, like, Masonic symbols? That dollar bill is saying, if you put on the glasses, this is your god. And John Carpenter uses cinematic language to talk about the significance and indeed in some cases the purity of cinema. The widescreen framing in They Live, which I learned from reading this book, uh, is such that there is information throughout the entire rectangular frame. Mm. So that when you put it on television, which They Live argued is one of the greatest evils... (laughs) <laughs> and one of the greatest brainwashers yeah, yeah, and one yeah. of the greatest things that is like ruining society if you watch it on television back in the era where all TVs were square and everything was pan and scanned whether the artists like it or not you were always missing information and they live yeah, if you yeah. watch they live on TV you missed it yeah. so all of a sudden I'm looking at this I'm like holy shit this is went from a movie being I dug to a movie that I suddenly realize is absolutely fucking like brilliant an actual cinema classic so that's the power film criticism can have mm. it can turn something that you like into something brilliant mm. it can turn something you don't like into something you love or like even just mm. that much that's great Let's read some more letters. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, Sorry. Here's, here's a letter from B. Peterson. <laughs> I ramble. <laughs> it's fine. You know, it's fine. Okay. It's fine. Please, hi, B. Peterson. Please do. Uh, hi, B. Peter. Uh, dear Cinnamon and the Fiendish Dr. Zoltan. Okay. Uh, the world is shut down to one degree or another, and I'm locked in my house for the foreseeable future. What am I going to do? It's obvious. Binge watch all the film and TV shows of David Lynch. Hey! <laughs> for the first time, and then make a short film. Ooh! So this is part of a big project. That's a great um, idea. For the next five letters, I will be briefly reviewing films or seasons of television directed or overseen by David Lynch, and then in the sixth, I will give my overall analysis of his works as well as uh, share my short film with you. That's really cool. I'm looking forward to that. I love that. I can't wait to see that. Uh, Today, Lynch's first three films, Eraserhead, The Elephant Man, and Dune. Uh, Eraserhead... That's a hell um, of a triple feature, by the way. Woo! That's that's, that's a heavy triple feature. Sounds like a fun day to me, but uh, let's see. Eraserhead uh, is the cinematic equivalent of a nightmare. The simplicity and purity of its horror is 
is frankly astonishing. One is engrossed by its weirdness, put off by how plainly it portrays it. I don't believe I've ever seen... I've been more frightened by a movie monster than I have been by that child. It absolutely disgusts and repels me. Yeah. Yeah. An incredible debut that will no doubt serve as a concentration of Lynch's ideas about dreams and fear. Whitney, you're a sick man for loving this one. Eraserhead is one of my favorite movies. I think Um, Eraserhead is legitimately... One of the films that, if you love movies, mm. it's like a hoop everyone's got to jump through. You, At you some point, you got to yeah, you got to watch Eraserhead. I think it's, it's really it's important. It's a little bit of a rite of passage, yeah. not, and not just for like weird cult stuff, like cinema in general. They're just sort of this weird, unadulterated. Uh, David Lynch wouldn't want me to call it surrealist, but it is a work of surrealism. I'd I, say. I, um, I think it's fair to say that not every artist has the absolute best interpretation of their own work. Mm-hmm. It's very personal to them. Yeah. I think it's perfectly okay to call David Lynch's work surrealist. Um, but yeah, in Racerhead, that is a very intense work. And yeah. that is one of the great cinematic debuts yeah. of a filmmaker. Yeah. I, I That's feel... just right out of the gate, a brand mm. new voice. Uh, it, it's it's like David Lynch attached a little hatch in his forehead. And he was able to open it up and just this black glop of fear poured out. <laughs> completely unadulterated. That sounds by, like something like, you like, Lynch me- Meaning or symbolism, yeah. But, but yeah, it's in there, and it's, I think it's, David Lynch can't there, resist yeah. it. I think even if David Lynch tries mm. to remove symbolism from his work, it's one of the things, he, one of the reasons why he doesn't think his work is surrealist. Because, yeah, he doesn't like to, his work to be seen as symbolic I mean, of anything. Eraserhead is... Uh, Pretty clearly keying into anxieties mm. about urban father, life, uh, urban fatherhood, life, fatherhood yeah. isolation, mm. uh, sexual. Uh, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, stifling. Okay. Uh, that's not the right word, but uh, frustration, sexual frustration. Sexual um, I, I think he's keying into very universal agonies mm. uh, with Eraserhead, and he's presenting yeah. them in a completely subjective way that I think connects to us because we recognize, if not the imagery, Mm. the tone. Well, we recognize the feeling is is what's going on. Uh, Eraserhead taps into something very real. Now, we, we, we're big horror nuts, you and I. And yeah. I think you and I have a, a great respect for great horror films that tap into universal fil- fears, like mm-hmm. films like The Exorcist, the fear that your your relative might be sick. Yeah. So uh, I think The Exorcist and David Cronenberg's version of The Fly would make a good double feature, because they're, bo- they're both about illness in a lot of ways. The Exorcist is about um, other stuff as well, but well, that's definitely uh, but, a yeah, but also issue, yeah. also The Exorcist is about you know religion and faith and religious hysteria and uh, so there's a lot going. I think you have to be an adult to really get into that one. Yeah. But we also like sort of just fun, Slunk. fun, schlocky yeah. slasher movies. Yeah. Uh, like we were talking about Death Spa on a recent podcast. But Death Spa is a delight. Death Spa is wonderful. It has yeah. killer. It's about a haunted spa. Also, the the ghosts possess fish in one scene. There's I don't know. Really, there's a, there's a part in a larder and like the, the anchovies come to life. Well, there's and a start part killing. where people, yeah. there's a part where people are showering. There's like you know it's a big shower. It's a gym. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's a lascivious scene. There's a bunch of naked flesh. And all of a sudden, the tiles pop out of the walls. And from behind the tiles, jets of water start shooting people. Oh. And I'm like, why would there be jets of water? What did the, what did the ghosts do? Plumbing? Yeah, they bored holes through those <laughs> that's, pipes. That's yeah. ridiculous. It's fun. It's fun. Please. It's <laughs> really stupid. <laughs> also, see Death Spa. But um, that's great. what Eraserhead does that I think most horror films don't do is that it gives you a 
it gives you just fear straight. It's not tapping into a universal fear. It's not giving you a kind of fear that you can recognize from your own life. It's that free-floating anxiety you feel when you wake up from a nightmare. Well, because there's no there's no immediacy to the fear yeah, yeah. in a race, right? It's not the fear of being killed by a guy with an right. axe. It's not the fear of even dying from a disease, which has a final element to mm. it. The fear that I th- is not Sergio on the counter. <laughs> the fear, keep I think the fear is that this is what his life is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The fear is that my life is lonesome. Is is loneliness? It's rejection. It's it's, it's, it's living in this black, yeah. it's non-organic space with bricks over the walls. It's being it's, a failure as a yeah. human being and a father. It's it's feeling all of those yeah. negative feelings about your child. So, the parents yeah, don't feel I, like they're allowed to talk about. All, all of that's the, there, the, but yeah, I, I think these are it's, permanent feelings. Yeah. This is what it feels like in a racer. But I, I there feel like, be, but it's how it feels. I feel like with Eraserhead, David Lynch didn't didn't like go into ordinary anxieties and find the fear underneath. I think he started with the fear and figured out what we. have hang on it as if fear were sort of our default state yeah well, before we even know words or know who we are as human beings we have fear and we have guilt well, I mean, and i think, think that's it, that's a really sort of pertinent thing that he's tapping into and that's what i'm really connecting to with when, something like when you look at like the character that jack nance plays in that movie henry mm. i mean just look at his head <laughs> like his his hair mm. is permanently in a cartoonish I'm frightened position <laughs> like you would see in a yeah. cartoon from like the 1940s just ah Hair, and then, uh, like and, it's permanently there. He's permanently shocked. He's permanently mm. on edge. Jack Nance was so devoted that he actually kept his hair throughout in that style throughout the course of the shoot. And if you know anything about the movie, it took five years to shoot. That's yeah, madness. So yeah, he was Absolutely. just out in the world with that hairdo. Anyway, okay, there's more onward, to this. Um, yeah, sorry. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> The Elephant Man, says uh, B. Peterson. Underappreciated David uh, is, Lynch film. Was what I hoped to be the low point of David Lynch's films. Don't get me wrong, John Hurt and Anthony Hopkins are very good. This is a com- competently made film. There are flashes of the surreal abstract imagery that Lynch clear- is clearly more interested in, but not enough to distract from what is ultimately a very dull, melodramatic, and depressing story. I can't think of what more to say about it. It is a testament to its insignificance. Wow. Oh, God, well, I, I love, like that movie more than uh, that. Yeah, I, I, I like the, the Elephant Man a lot. Here's I what I can say about the Elephant Man. Here's where... Mm-hmm. I, I completely understand maybe not connecting to it because I think it's – first of all, it's gorgeously photographed. Yeah. Um, John oh, Hurt, oh, I think, gives an incredible yes. performance. The makeup effects mm-hmm. are perfect. Um, but, you know, we talk a lot about how Dune was this, you know, kind of sellout movie for David Landry's working for a studio system, adapting mm-hmm. material he wasn't comfortable with. Um, I think The Elephant Man is a very good marriage of David Lynch's aesthetic – and what and is frankly recognizable like, storytelling? Oh, well, yeah. it's, rec- rec- it's a Hollywood biopic. In hmm. many respects, it'd be Oscar bait in any in any oh, hands. And it was it was nominated for Oscars. Yeah, and 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 with good cause, I think. But it's got that formula. Mm. It's got the biopic formula ingrained yeah. into it. It is David Lynch working with structure in a way that David Lynch almost never did. Mm. Like. And Almost never. It like, hasn't since, really. Yeah, like, I mean, even so, the straight story is a little more abstract. Than yeah, it's, it's an odd film in a lot of ways. So I actually think that arguing that The Elephant Man is kind of... I wouldn't say it's the least of David Lynch's work. I think he did other films that don't connect as hard. Hmm. But when I would argue that maybe on some level, even more so than Dune, which just gets weird. <laughs> maybe you would argue that it's kind of the least David Lynch of David Lynch. I could see that. Right. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I can yeah. see that. 
I, I remember uh, uh, to, to cite Roger Ebert again. I read his review of uh, the Elephant Man. He didn't give it a very good review mm. when it first came out, and I think uh, Ebert was recoiling against a lot of people who called uh, Joseph Merrick, renamed John Merrick in the movie. Uh, as being very brave because mm. he was born with all these infirmities. He had an oversized head and you know, mm. tumors all over his body. He, he was pretty physically uh, uh, disabled, but he was able to sort of rise above and still remain a gentle soul through all of this. And yeah. a lot of people thought that there was some sort of bravery to that. And Roger Ebert re- rejected that uh, assessment of Joseph Merrick. He, he's like, he's not brave. He He was born this way. He is just living his life. He is a good man living a good life. We can't sort of we can't we we can't sort of like give him the benefit of the doubt as if he would fall just because he was disabled. We have to uh, you know admire that he was a good person rather than try to project our own journey onto him. But is that an arguing mm. that uh, mm. that's an interesting assessment? But is that arguing that the movie is condescending or that people's takeaways are condescending? I, I think those are two different criticisms. The, well, he wrote that in his review, but yeah, he was yeah. actually re- responding more to uh, people's reactions he to was it. Responding and, to Sergio's reaction. <laughs> and Sergio finally, and finally, uh, B. Peterson says, Dune. Uh, Dune is bananas. Yes. <laughs> the production and costume design, weird visual effects, a multitude of very over-the-top performances by overqualified actors turn the dumb story with an absolutely stupid dialogue into something not only watchable, but enjoyable. Although it is on somewhat an ironic level. By the time the climax uh, happened and Kyle freaking McLaughlin became the very hand of God yelling, the spice is the worms, the worms are the spice. I knew I had witnessed something quite special. Is what it, are your thoughts on these films? Well, we've been giving them to well, you. Is, yeah. is, is it Sting the one? Is uh, Sting the one who says, "I will kill him"? Yeah, Sting. Says That's that, my favorite yeah. line. I know we 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 quote Baron Harkonnen like, "I'm afraid I'm going to spit on you." Okay, let it spit on your face. I, that's what we quote yeah. the most. But my favorite quote is Sting going, "I will kill him." Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sting is not a good actor. Well, <laughs> he could be a fun actor. I wouldn't call him a good. A little. Plastic panties. Uh, you have a different connection to Doom because you're a fan of the books. Well, and... I, was a, I was a fan of the movie first, actually. Oh, really? I went, went back and read the, the book after I had seen the film. That's interesting, because um, I've only seen the film, okay. and it was in the last day of... Oh, actually, <laughs> I've actually never seen Inland Empire. It's the one I haven't seen. Yeah. And I kind of like that there's one I haven't seen, so I'm going to get to it <laughs> at some point. it's a big one, too. It's oh, like I know. three-hour, 15-minute movie. I'll get to it eventually, but... Um, yeah, Dune was the last David Lynch movie I hadn't seen, mm. uh, besides Inland Empire. And... Um, I'd heard that it was terrible because mm-hmm. we all had. And well, I'd David worked... Lynch said that too. I he hated know. working with the studios. And uh, and I'd never read the book, mm-hmm. uh, and I had only a vague idea of the story. Like I knew about the sandworms and the spice, but mm-hmm. no. I finally watched Dune, and actually, I watched it uh, with your wife. That's right. Yeah, because you were out, and um, we, this is back when we lived in the same apartment complex, and we're just mm-hmm. over each other's places all the time. And I forget how it came out. I was like, "Oh, I'm watching Dune," and she's like, "Oh, can I watch?" I'm like, "Sure," and we mm-hmm. just watched Dune. I kind of love Dune. <laughs> I, it, makes, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense, huh. but it is hypnotic. It is un, when you look at the scale of that movie mm-hmm. and the type of storytelling David Lynch wanted to do with it. It's unlike any other giant scale yeah, yeah, yeah. movie. And even though, yeah, okay, as a story, it's baffling at best. Mm-hmm. Acting is all over the place, <laughs> but it is distinct and unique. And yeah, I would argue that it is very Lynchian. But there's a weird filter in that one. Like there's, there's kink in a way that like, I don't think David Lynch even is really thinking about the costume design. 
mm-hmm. is like right out of a like out of a fetish club, and I'm not sure David Lynch has any actual sexual interest in that. When <laughs> when Sting is walking around in this large like hulking uh, speedo, mm-hmm. it's not even a tight speedo. It's, it's yeah. got bits on it. That's it. <laughs> it's got wi- <laughs> wings that kind of sort of yeah. come out of his hips. It's absurd looking. It's mm. not sexy. Mm. It should be. That's Sting at the height of being Sting in a in a speedo. I mean, and I'm yeah, feeling nothing d- because Dune is, uh, he's so detached from the material. Uh, Fr- Frank Herbert's novel Dune has been compared to Lord of the Rings, just yeah. sort of like on the science fiction that it is. It has this own its own glossary of terms and all this big expansive mythology mm-hmm. and all of, everything in it is very original. Like I don't don't have to qualify the word original. It's all original. It doesn't yeah. feel like it's derived from anything else. Uh, yeah, even Lord of the Rings yeah. feels like it's derived from other things. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, it's, it's all coming out of, like, whole, that whole Gary Gygax thing. But, um, I, I know Gary Gygax came later. But, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it all feels just unbelievably striking. Desert World is thinking about the technology, but it's not about sort of the blinking lights and the smooth, clean, utopian spaceships we got from, like, Star Trek or even Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was all this we- very bizarre sort of thing. Um, rumor has it that he was just drunk on vodka the entire time <laughs> when he was writing it, Frank Herbert. Uh, allegedly. Yeah. Uh, and when and I think David Lynch was a good pairing for that kind of material because it's just so bizarre. And I think he he added a lot to the movie, like the weirding modules, turning your voice into a weapon. That's made up for the movie. Oh, that's really? not that's in the not, book at all. No, that's um, some weird bit. Yeah, <laughs> my name is like, a killing word. That's that's David Lynch's idea. It feels it feels like it fits though. It doesn't feel like it belongs in a different film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Weird. Uh, if you. Uh, yeah, so I really admire what he did, even if it is sort of a fail, failing on a storytelling level. That yeah. doesn't really matter to me because it does bear that sort of weird, dreamlike David Lynch tone set yeah. to this gigantic, epic science fiction story that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's just a wonderment. It's a different uh, kind of dream. Like, yeah. Eraserhead is a very personal, intimate dream about our own fears and paranoias and anxiety. And Sergio, I can see you over there. <laughs> I can see you thinking about it. Uh mm. That's what that kind of dream is. Blue Velvet is a, is a suburban mm. uh, uh, nightmare. I like. I've never done Quaaludes, but I imagine <laughs> that like like Dune is the kind of thing you dream about after you do that kind of like really heavy drug. Yeah, and you're yeah. Just, your brain is operating on another um, level, and you're just coming up with the weirdest, weirdest shit. Like Sergio, I saw oh you. I am so disappointed. <laughs> I've never been more the, uh, disappointed in a cat. The uh, oh gosh, sorry about you, that. You um, knew. You look right at me. If you, you uh, if if you know, but Dune came out in 1983, and if you look up uh, how that that sort of coincides with the release of Return of the Jedi, yeah. which uh, if if it's a pretty well known piece of film trivia, David Lynch was offered Return of the Jedi. Everybody yeah. was offered Return of the Jedi. Not uh, everybody. A, but lot, a lot of, of people, people like were offered Cronenberg was yeah. offered Return of the Jedi. Uh, he made Videodrome instead. Better choice. Um, Cronenberg was offered a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. Cronenberg was offered Total Recall. He worked on it for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would explain he, a lot of weird bodily stuff in that movie. But, I, I um, just wrote an article for Bloody Disgusting about the man with two brains, which is this great Steve oh, Martin it's wonderful, comedy. Yeah. Steve Martin wanted David Cronenberg to direct it. <laughs> that would have been interesting. Yeah, David Cronenberg, of course, had no interest. Yeah. He's, he's not a very funny filmmaker, but like, yeah, th- th- but, but really a, weird, right? A bone of levity in his body. Not but really. But uh, David Lynch was offered Return of the Jedi, and you can find online like the interview he gives about how he just couldn't understand Return of like Return of the Jedi was too weird for him. Yeah, he doesn't. It's he, like, he I, well, I met, it's, it's like it's, I met up. I met up with. 
with this guy, George Lucas, and he showed me this thing, and it was called a Wookiee, and I had such a headache. I love it when and you I'm do like, David I'm Lynch. out. <laughs> I love it when you do yeah. David Lynch. The hair is on the back of my neck. Stand up. <laughs> um, but I think, I think the issue there is that, you know, David Lynch has adapted material before and since, mm-hmm. I think. And I think in all the other material, there was room for him to filter it through his own subconsciousness. Yeah. Star Wars is George Lucas's subconsciousness, and everyone else... Well, now it's not, but at the time, you know, yeah, people rewrote it, but it was always George Lucas who's the one saying, okay, that's here's, fine. Here's like, the that, story, that's a good yeah. idea. I was wrong about this, or mm. yeah, maybe Han Solo shouldn't die, like that kind of thing. Like, David Lynch would have had to filter his filter through someone else's filter, mm. and I think that would have been a terrible idea for everyone. No, no. I, I would love to, if they gave David Lynch carte blanche to do Return oh, of the Jedi, I would that would have been great. I mean, even, even if they hadn't, it would have been fascinated, yeah. but like... No I one, no one would, would talk... They, people would talk about Return of the Jedi the same way they talk about the holiday special. Oh, that one doesn't count. I think, yeah, <laughs> I think, I think if David Lynch had done Return of the Jedi, there's an excellent chance that it would have been taken away from him like it was mm. from the Lego movie guys. Yeah. Or it would have ruined the franchise for a lot of people. There are yeah. people who love it, but there are but, people who are just like, and I'm done with Star Wars. But, the but, first two were good. <laughs> but golly, that would have been an interesting movie. I probably would have loved it. Like, probably version, better than the one we got. Every you know? version of that in my head is awesome. Every version, <laughs> good or bad, yeah. every version is awesome, and I kind of wish we'd yeah. seen it. Right, here's a letter from Mike. Anyway, oh, oh, oh. Real, real fast. I just want to say that's a great idea is to use this opportunity to mm. uh, like grow your knowledge. Whether that's reading books by your favorite author or seeing all Going every movie a by a certain director, yeah, yeah. that's a re- now it's a really really good time of like on some level like we've been granted the gift of spare time. As well, you d- know, depending like, on who we are, some of us have kids at home. No, some, some of us, us have to work and everything, but a lot of us have. This is just. I mean, I'm not saying it's a good thing what's going on, but I'm saying as well on the upside, mm. I have more reading time. Yeah, yeah. Now's a really good time. Yeah, re- take, take take the opportunity. You know? uh, read a book that was written at least 100 years before your birth you uh, and watch a movie that was made at least 70 years before your birth and uh, well, go some, for it. we have some older listeners oh well let's say let's say 50 50 years before 50 your years birth. before your birth uh, yeah just just do the deep dive yeah. uh, this is this go is the nuts. time where you can do it um here's a letter from mike hi mike hi mike uh dear uh, bibs knobs and broomsticks hey and the whitney spelled with two v's like in the witch i get it yeah and then he says, I'm sorry. You're fine. <laughs> <laughs> I was recently catching up on episodes at work and listened to your discussion on Julie's Green Room. Oh, yeah. Uh, Cancel Too Soon episode. Yeah, that was a fun Netflix one. Netflix series. Um, though I was a band geek in high school, I did end up volunteering at a local playhouse as my f- at my first duty station while in the military. Oh, that's Even cool. though all I wanted to do was help build sets and help with the effects needed for The Blythe Spirit. Ooh, that's a good production. <laughs> I, if you watch that movie, if you haven't seen it, it's wonderful. Right. Uh, the director said I should try out for a part anyway. Yeah. Uh, uh, there were only two male roles in the play, but she said I probably wouldn't get it uh, because since she wanted somebody older for the roles, well, I did audition and so did one other guy, so I got a part anyway. Hey. I played the doctor in the play with not too many lines, which is fortunate because I'm an atrocious actor. The only <laughs> funny thing I could think to do since I had so few lines was to have my character shovel down martinis the entire play. That works. So when he left the party, the doctor I played would stumble off in a drunker stupor, giving my only laugh of the play. Overall, I was very glad I got the opportunity to be a... Uh, to be part of my local playhouse and listening to the Julie's Green Room, the memories of it came flooding back. 
That, that's nice. I think that's what the function of that show was. I, you and I talked about this when we covered Julie's Green Room. You and I are essentially recovering theater geeks. Um, <laughs> I've never recovered. No, it, it doesn't go away. No. It stays in your blood forever. Like It will I, speak from the diaphragm I, forever. I, I, yeah. I, I've noticed I still do this. I, I like cheat my the way I'm facing so yeah. I'm always like facing the person I'm talking to so I'll turn in weird ways I know, just makes, out in the world it, it makes, makes you no great sense. on the showdown I love watching it you. yeah well it just means I'm stage trained but well, um yeah. But yeah Julie's green room really understands that you get bitten by the acting bug and that was meant to sort of perpetuate that it was meant to passion. give kids the yeah, acting yeah. bug it was basically you know just coughing but, on them but the disease was theater kid that's a good <laughs> disease to get yeah if there's any disease you want to get it's being a theater kid um, um, I, I hope I raise a theater kid. It, it's going to be know, it's right? going to be a pain in the ass. He's going to be going to be super dramatic, but I want him to have that. I, uh, a part of me wants you to end up with a sports kid. I don't mind having a sports. No, I, 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 I was an, an athlete. Really? Well, you in really? judo from age seven to age twelve. Judo, I'm not talking about but, judo. Yeah. I'm talking about like getting really into football. Well, not football. Well, that's my point. Yeah. Is like that. Kind, I want you to. I, I would Jude, really Jude was a sport, dude. I'm, I know Judo's a have sport. Your but judo saying. I'm not saying Judo isn't a sport. I have, nothing but respect for, stuff. I have nothing but respect for Judo. Okay. What I'm saying is the culture behind it mm-hmm. is different than a lot of the culture for other sports kids. Um, yeah. Okay. In the in this country, so like if you're raising a hockey kid, mm-hmm. it's a different culture yeah. than if you're raising a martial arts kid because martial I, arts is more about discipline, mm-hmm. and the other sports are more about competition. Uh, yeah, I I don't mind having. Having a jock. If, okay. if my son is a jock, I, want I, him. I didn't mean that demeaningly. Yeah, I just think it'd be funny if, like, there was like big schism in interest. Uh, you no, know, it wouldn't be a schism though. I, I want him. You would to... get into football. Absolutely. If okay. my son was into it, um, I want my son to lead me to what he's into. I'm not going to force nice. him to be into my stuff. You right? sweet, that's wonderful my, man. That's my stuff. He can have it if he wants it, but he's going to lead me to what he wants. That's, that's really more that, inter- I, that's going to be more interesting to I me. I never quite had that with my dad. I had, a, I had a nice relationship with my dad. Mm. Don't get me wrong, but he had his, his interests and I had mine, and mm. there wasn't a lot of overlap. And we had to find other things to talk about. Um, so that's really sweet. I love you, man. You're really <laughs> good. You. You're a really good dad. Oh, you you give me I'm, hope. I'm man. trying. I'm trying. Because I, th- yeah. I have a lot of anxieties about like if I have kids, like would I be a good father? Mm-hmm. And then I look at you and I like. God, he, how does he do that? He's. <laughs> I've seen a lot of parents. I grew up. I was at my parents. I grew up around other people, and you're a really good dad. Oh, you, you, you really you set a high bar. I, I love my kid. And that's the important thing. Yeah. Um, uh, now to a question. Ah, yes. says Mike. Um, I grew up in a time when my family had a closet full of VHS tapes. Some of these were, uh, were so movies. Did I. Oh, indeed. Yeah, yeah. We, I guess you're about our age. Uh, some of these movies were ones recorded during their airing on TV. Even the three original Star Wars movies. One of my favorite movies growing up was the 1984 Ghostbusters film, which was one of these VHSs that was recorded from an airing on TV. This means lines like "Let's show this prehistoric bitch who's boss" was censored. However, the line "It's true, this man has no dick" remained. <laughs> <laughs> So weird. That's so weird. I remember watching a, a TV broadcast of The Shining, oh. and they they uh, oh right they left in the nudity. They dubbed out all the cuss words, so yeah. like all of the it's not full of cusses, but there's a couple, there's and a they few. Would, they would dubbed over with like less less uh, rough words. But yeah, there's a fully frontally nude scene in that movie, and they just left that in. Yeah, it's the only time I'd ever seen fully front fully frontal nude TV nudity like on network yeah. TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Anyway, uh, it was also many years before I ever saw part the part of the montage that showed Dan Aykroyd in a dream sequence receiving a blowjob from a ghost. Yeah, I think this movie was play. better without this portion. Uh, <laughs> anyway, there's been uh, has there been any movie that you grew up only watching an edited version of, in which you only later in life saw the theatrical cut? Thank you for your time and all that you do, Mike. Oh, uh, that's totally true. Uh, and actually, I, I actually just realized that I, I mentioned that a few minutes ago. Mm. Um, because I just wrote an article about the man with two brains, and mm. when I wrote that article, I watched the movie again. And what I realized was I had never seen the movie just like on a DVD mm. or on HBO. I'd only seen it on network TV before. Mm. Now the, the sun, the scene where the sun kills her Z cells, yeah, isn't in the theatrical cut. Exactly. <laughs> there's a thing that happens with some movies. We're used to them cutting stuff out. Mm. But there's actually sometimes because you cut stuff out or just the light running time of a movie, the movie runs short. So you have and they to had a full put, time. put the, the cleaner footage that they originally cut back in, or just or just they have to extend it. Like mm. I, there's a there's I saw a, a version of Tin Cup on TV, okay. just on FX or something. And I love that movie. It's a fun movie. Um, and there's just this extra scene of them like in their Winnebago and like the Winnebago can't fit under like an arch or something like that, and mm. it's it's filler. Yeah. But clearly the movie was running short because they cut stuff, so they added this 30, 45 second scene in there. Mm. There's a couple of things that are missing in The Man uh, with Two Brains from the official cut. Mm. One was the scene, because there's a scene in the actual official movie where Kathleen Turner is, um, she's baking Sissy SpaceX brain. In, oh yeah, yeah. And uh, Steve Martin rescues the brain, and in order to see if the brain's okay... He has uh, uh, the brain like count to ten. Count to ten, and she doesn't have. A, <clears throat> she she can't say nine yeah, anymore. She killed your nine you, cells. You cooked her nines. He yeah. says. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's another bit where like she gets like in the sun, and it's like like a magnifying glass, and mm. she has her say the alphabet, and she gets to Y, and then she doesn't say Z, and she doesn't know what's wrong. He says, "You killed your Zs." There's another scene though. That well, but the the thing is in. In the original cut of that movie, I guess, uh, yeah. the scene where, like, the sun is beaming through the crystal and it's baking her Z-cells. Yeah. And he, he actually says, the sun killed your Z-cells. And there's actually a little bit where uh, he senses that the brain is in danger and kind of reaches out in this sort of yeah. psychic way. All of that is set up for payoffs later on in the movie. Yeah. When you cut out that scene, those gags actually don't make as much sense. Well, no, because he still, he still rescues her from being, like... Mm. I think put into the gorilla or something like that. He, he goes through earlier. Like they set that mm. up, but regardless, yeah, it's weird that that's gone, but there's another bit, by the way, if you ever seen the man with two brains, it's fucking great. <laughs> it's, it's really bizarre. <laughs> there's like four jokes in it oh. that are really not funny right now because they're just offensive and they mm. don't, they don't land, but the majority of it is just, it's a silly delight. Um, but, uh, and it's like Steve Martin falls in love with a brain. That's mm. it. That's the whole movie. But there's another bit where he, he marries Kathleen Turner and he doesn't realize that Kathleen Turner is like a gold digger and she's planning to kill him. And, mm. um, and when he realizes that she's been unfaithful to him, he declares a citizen's divorce. Yes. And in the official movie, that's just it. That's the whole gag. Mm. In the version I saw on TV, uh, she talks to his lawyer and she finds out that he just inherits, inherited like $15 million, but he just said citizen's divorce. Mm. And she's like, a citizen's divorce isn't legally binding, is it? And uh, the lawyer says, no, no, of course not. Unless you're in Austria. Which they, happen, course, to they, they Austria. happen to be in Austria. Mm. So that line mm. wasn't in the official cut. 
I don't know why. That's a funny oh, was line. It? Oh, God. No, that, it's a funny I, line. You and but, I have the same experience weird. with this movie because, yeah. yeah, I taped it off TV, and that's the only way I saw it for a long time. Yeah, so there's at least two good, broad jokes mm. that were not uh, in the in mm. the DVD slash official version of the film. What about you? Are there any other movies that you only remember um, from the network version? Uh, I remember... Unfortunately, a lot of the times I'd like seen if, I, if it's on TV, I'm probably gonna like I had already seen it. Uh, the first time I saw the movie Hellraiser, it was on network TV, ah. and they left it all in. Weird. That's like a goopy, bloody, disgusting it's movie. The, it's repulsive. Yeah. Then I mean, it's oh, yeah. great, but it's like it's, that's. It's, I guess. I guess. Here's my question: hmm. How do you even show that movie if you cut it? Like, if you cut out the scene of like. Frank like growing up out of the floor yeah, growing, yeah, yeah. all of a sudden he's like half a skeleton it's mm. one of the great visual effects in horror like it's mm. beautiful but disgusting uh, if you cut that shot out what do you have yeah <laughs> you only have a movie yeah <laughs> that shot's either in there or you yeah. don't show Hellraiser like a, those are your two Hell, options Hellraiser is a horror movie predicated very directly on blood and sex it's it's yeah. all it's all about a, a skinless incubus who has to suck blood so he can fuck his lover again. You know, yeah. it's like, this is a disgusting film. Yeah, it's really, I mean, that's Clive Barker. Lo- it's I love it, about yeah. that shit. Yeah. Yeah. Love it, but uh, uh, I remember watching the TV edit of Batman Returns on television. Now, Interesting. And they tried to fit it into a two-hour time slot. Now, without any commercials, that movie is like two hours and six minutes long. Yeah, it's a pretty big move. Uh, and they tried to fit it into essentially 90 minutes of TV, and it, yeah. it felt like I was watching the previously on Batman Returns reel because <laughs> what they did was they chopped like little like a few seconds out of the beginning and end of every scene or they mm. just had like one pertinent line of dialogue edited in it felt yeah. so rushed it was really really strange there's there's a, a when you're editing a movie mm. the most common way to edit a movie is uh, to put everything in mm. and then start taking stuff out Right. This feels unnecessary. We don't need this shot. This scene is redundant. Mm. We can get this whole scene across with a line of voiceover dialogue, which we can record later. And then the movie slowly gets shorter, which is why when you hear stories about like, oh, the first cut of Black Panther was three and a half hours. No, that was like the assembly reel. That's mm. like just everything in the movie. That's not a director's cut. That's just putting in all the footage. You right. don't need all that footage. You don't want all that footage. It's pacing would suck. Um, However, I was watching, of all things, it was like a commentary track on Wishmaster. <laughs> okay. And um, I think it was editor Patrick Lussier, mm-hmm. uh, who went out to direct some really good movies. Uh, he was talking about how he had a different approach. And was, I think it particularly worked when you're under a crunch, mm-hmm. which is don't start by putting everything in. Mm-hmm. Start by putting only what you think you need. Yeah. Here's just the important stuff. Anything extraneous, unnecessary scenes... Anything, boom, just hit the main plot points and just get him in there. And then you say, what's missing? Yeah, we can put something here. Yeah, what, Surely we, they shot something. Yeah, like yeah. this feels really rushed. Do we have any? Yeah, we do. We have all these other shots and, hmm. and, and establishing shots and some filler and like these little moments. And like, great, okay, cool. Now that works pacing-wise. Mm-hmm. And then we, this is all we need. This is all we need. And then boom. You have to, be, you have to really know your shit mm-hmm. to get away with that approach. Like, you have to know... You're kind of working backwards. Yeah. yeah, yeah. In some way. So, I always thought that was really fascinating. Mm-hmm. But, um... That just, that just reminded me of it. Like, yeah, the bare bones. What do we need to basically give you the gist of Batman Returns? Yeah, I feel I feel like there's maybe a little too much freedom in a lot of filmmaking these days. Especially yeah. like, uh, something like Black Panther. It's like, oh, we can just make three hours of footage and re-edit it as we go and do what... You know, change it if we want to. It's like, well... 
let's pretend we don't have $200 million. Let's pretend we have $5 million and we have to get this out next week. Yeah. Like, pretend would, there are some restrictions. Important? Yeah, let's, let's be, be a little bit more efficient about this. I, I would love a... to see one Marvel movie cost, mm. like, less than $50 million. And, Just and, one. Just try it. And is 90 minutes long. Yeah, like, that would like be a good idea really... for something like, I don't know what they have planned, but, like, they're doing Shang-Chi, uh-huh. which is basically a kung fu movie. Mm. I mean... That's what it is at its core. I don't know if they're going to add him, like, add him fighting the dragon, Fin Fang Foom or something. But, like, <laughs> that, basically it's a kung fu movie. Hmm. There's no reason for that to cost $200 million. Well, you know, the best kung fu have, movies like, ever made have cost, have, like, like, less than $2 million. Space kung fu monsters I'm, and cosmic I'm powers. Not, and, and I'm not saying that wouldn't be fun. I'm, I'm what sure, I'm saying is it would be cool to just do hmm. the stripped down, hmm. like, the... The Raid cost nothing. <laughs> the Raid was a very cheap motion picture by Hollywood standards. It is more kick-ass than most Hollywood movies ever made. Yeah. And I'm not even the biggest fan of The Raid, but it fucking rocks. Anyway. I've, I haven't seen The Raid. I saw The Raid 2, but I haven't oh, seen The Oh, that must have been weird. Yeah. Okay, The, Raid, the Raid's better. All right. Uh, here's a letter from Oliver. Hello, Oliver. Hi, uh, Oliver. hi Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool. That's me. Uh, yeah. I just thought about your discussion about video game movies and how oh, yeah. fans require validation by them being turned into movies. While I mostly agree with Whitney that one art form should not validate another art form, I actually think it's a little more complicated than that. As a fan of theater and musicals, I often anxiously await the least, uh, the latest musical play adaptation, not because we need validation, but because it sometimes is the only way I can see the art form in one way whatsoever. Mm. Living in Australia, far away from the bright lights of Broadway or the West End, it's often years before I can see shows if I see them at all. While I can read the play or listen to the cast recording, it isn't the same as seeing it live. Okay. While I admit a film also cannot replicate a live stage performance, I'd rather watch Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor perform Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf on film, to name an old example than to read Edward Albee's text from the script book. Just my two thoughts, Oliver. I like that. Um, and that's a good point. I think there's a really yeah. big difference between... Th- just to keep it in the theater metaphor, mm. I don't want to talk about how that relates to video games in a second, but um, I'm a firm believer... You know, it's, it's really important, I think, to read plays because then you learn about how the text translates mm. to the stage. But I firmly believe that if you're like in an English class and they're just like teaching you the script yeah they're just they're just, they're just showing you the mm. script for like ibsen's the, the dollhouse mm. you should see that thing performed yeah because yeah. that's not finished mm. the script is the skeleton on which the meat right, goes right. and only once you have the yeah. meat and the flesh and the sinew and the tendons and the nerves and the skin and the hair that's when you have a person that's when you have an entity that's when it's done mm. so it's great to read Shakespeare, but if you're not watching Shakespeare, you're not getting Shakespeare, I think. Not, not in the same sort of way. That's, no, that's no, you can sure. appreciate it, but it's not the same thing. Yeah, re- reading a Shakespearean play is, is still a validating experience, and I think getting to know the words of the bard is just fine, and I think yeah. everybody should do it. But yeah, yeah uh, seeing it performed is really going to give you a chance to understand that these things are still alive. Well, I think and, it really, uh, especially uh, when you're young, mm-hmm. like when you, uh, Hamlet can f- seem kind of like digressive, but when you watch the movie, you realize here's where the dramatic emphasis goes, here's mm. where the through lines are, and even if you get a little lost in the language, you can appreciate the plot, and then you can look at the text and start picking it apart yeah, and appreciating maybe. it better. Uh, I, I'm not sure if this is quite a good analogy, uh, like a good corollary between video games and theater, because uh. uh, a lot of people have described cinema as kind of a child of theater, because you know, theater, of course, came first and was around for thousands of years. Yeah. Uh, and... You know, telling the sort of fictional story where instead of doing it in the room, you're doing it in front of a camera. You're recording it. It's technologically based. 
uh, and putting it like sort of moving the play around from theater to theater without any of the actors uh, is at least more akin to theater than a medium like video games, which is by its design rule-based and interactive. Uh, I don't entirely agree with that. Well, I mean, a lot of people have said that that video games are a really good storytelling medium, and people have also said the film is a good storytelling medium. Well, of course. Um, Because they both are, I think, but yeah. I think video games, however, are more fundamentally games. That's why they're called games. Uh, And I think the structure is an an inextractable part of that experience. Well, I think there's... First off, I want to make something abundantly clear. When we talk about video games as an art form, uh, video Mm. games are not... uh, Video games are like any art form. Like, there's... when When we refer to painting... Not all paintings are the same. Yeah. There's watercolors. There's mixed media. There's different shapes of canvas. There's mm-hmm. different uh, aesthetics and styles and adherence to those styles and people who blend them. And uh, video games are exactly the same way. There are many video games that are simply games. When you're playing solitaire on your computer, mm-hmm. that's a video game. Yeah. No denying it. That's not a story. That's just rules. That's just, mm-hmm. you know, parcheesy, but on a computer. Uh, there are also video games that tell stories in a variety of different narrative ways. The thing that I think is the fundamental thing that video games can do mm-hmm. that movies don't. I'm not saying they can't, but I don't think they do it very well. Video games exist in a state of constant immediacy. Yeah. Not, not in terms of what's happening on screen is happening right now. But because we're you, always you're, in going, a, you're going to need to react to something. Yeah, the the like the reason why so many video games operate within a like a cutscene, then gameplay, then cutscene, mm. is because that kind of dialogue moment, that kind of exposition, that's the part that conveys information in order to experience the next thing in the moment. When we watch, I don't know, a, a fight scene in Braveheart. Mm. Or, fuck it, Mortal Kombat the movie. When we watch people fighting in Mortal Kombat, we're watching two guys fighting up there. And it's exciting if it's, it's good fun. fight choreography. Yeah, if it's the first Mortal Kombat, it's pretty good. Uh, when you're playing Mortal Kombat, you're fighting right now. Mm. That is a sense of immediacy that is not conveyed by watching two other people fight. When you're playing Call of Duty, and you're actually in the thick of warfare, of course it's simulated, mm. but that is you Im- immediately in the most intense part of the narrative. When you're watching Saving Private Ryan, it feels intense, but it's a different experience. Because the video game is constantly the storming of Normandy. Saving Private Ryan, it's that, and then there's a bunch of plot afterwards. Mm. There's a lot more modulation. There's, I think... um, So my point is, I guess mm. my point is this. When the idea of taking storylines from video games and putting them in movies, you're, you're sacrificing the immediacy, but you might find a way to convey the story mm. to people who otherwise wouldn't understand, appreciate, or be able to get involved in that level of high-intensity experiential storytelling. And as a result, that could be a good thing so that you can say, okay, here's the story we really, really like from, I don't know, Prince of Persia or right. Bioshock or whatever. And you don't have the uh, interest or attention span or maybe the the motor skills necessary to play the game. Hmm. But we can guide you through the story in a different way. Okay. That could be of value. I think that's, for me, that's where the corollary is. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. I, I, I can't really speak too much to video games. I'm not very experienced with video games. I, 
I stopped playing video games right around the time people started saying, no, no, this is an art form. So I never really had that conversation. <laughs> and like caught up a decade later. Oh, no, video games are art. What, they're art now? Well, the, 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 Pac-Man is art now? Yeah. When the Lumiere brothers first started no, making it, movies, it, it we were talking about yeah. the greatness of cinematic yeah, it, art it, form. It, it evolved. The start of it. it was the it, technological beginning. Yeah, it, it evolved like over the course of a decade when I just wasn't even looking yeah. remotely in that direction. Sure. So, yeah, all of these things happened in video games that... I'm not familiar with and I don't really care about it. So, That's um, fair. And you don't have to. Yeah, but so, um, I, it's, I'm a just, it's just not a world I'm, I'm really deeply... I have a Nintendo Switch. I play Mario Kart. That's as far as it goes. You, know, it's, you, don't, you, have know. To, you don't have to do more than that. You don't, I don't have I don't to do the, listen the, the, to like classical the, music. You don't yeah. have to read Shakespeare. No, I don't you, go... You, these are just options. Yeah. They're all options. So, But I... I I'm only going by sort of the arguments I have in film discussions right. from people who are really into video games about how... Uh, how miffed they seem to be when uh, Hollywood gets like one of their favorite games wrong when already their game has taken over the world and it doesn't really matter what the film has to say. Uh, well, that's true, but yeah. you could also say that for do we really need any Shakespeare movies? They're performed all over the world. You can do mm. it for free. Well, and uh, surely there's some sort of theater snot out there in the world <laughs> who feels that any film adaptation of Shakespeare would be a disservice. Yeah. And uh, you know, you have to see it on stage. And there's a point to that. Shakespeare was written at a time before there were films and True. to really truly experience sort of the artistry of what Shakespeare was getting at is to see it sort of at, at the globe, essentially, true. You know, standing on the ground with all the other groundlings. That's that's true, but I also think there's something to be said for art staying mm. vital and vibrant and alive. Cross from, media. Cross media mm. through the ever-shifting landscape mm. of... Uh, culture, globalism, the mm. invention of new storytelling technologies. Yeah, I think uh, when it comes to like validating one art form with another art form, I don't think one can necessarily provide validation with the other. But I think you can watch, you know, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is a terrific film, uh, or watch the film version of To Kill a Mockingbird, which is also a terrific book. Yep, uh, and. Understand that these are really great works of art unto themselves, if they're done well. Uh, but also take a little bit with a grain of salt that this is uh, an adaptation that might feel a little bit more immediate or a little bit more pure in its native medium. Sure. Uh, and I think something like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, especially something that emotionally intense with that much screaming, is <laughs> is going to be and, – yeah, and, and mockery and wailing and infidelity right there on stage. If you're in a theater seeing that live on stage with real actors who are screaming right at you and you're – if you're lucky enough to sit up front and they start sweating on you, yeah, that's going to be a much more intense experience than however great – uh, you know, yeah. Elizabeth Taylor is in that role. Yeah. We've all been in a room with people who are having an argument. There's an energy to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah I get it. So, so yeah, I, I'm not going to say that the film does the play a disservice, but yeah. I am going to say that the two different media are going to be, be per, deliberately just by design because they can't because right. because McLuhan uh, <laughs> are going to be providing you two different well, let me things. Ask, let me ask you a question, and this mm. is something that I think gets asked. Maybe not a lot, but I think every critic has been asked this at one point or another. But I'm particularly mm. interested in your answer because you are, mm. you're not alone on this, but of the critics I know, you are one of the most well-read. Oh, you you read not, a lot. I'm not sure about that. But, well, you, but I can't believe me. Right. <laughs> There's a lot of critics I know who don't read mm. a lot of novels. Okay. You know, read, you know, they don't read a lot of stuff that came out before they were born. Mm. There's also a lot that do. I know yeah, a lot of I, critics I, who read constantly, but... You're one of the better read film critics. Not, oh, all right. Well, yeah, I, in terms I, of how many books you've read. I've, I've read a couple. <laughs> you're, you're, you're too <laughs> modest. 
Uh, is there, in your estimation, mm-hmm. and I, this is, of course, highly subjective, mm-hmm. uh, a movie adaptation of a book mm-hmm. that is significantly better than the book to the point where you wouldn't even recommend <laughs> the book. You would say, if you want to experience um, the story, the movie is where it's at. Yeah, um, well, here, uh, Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita uh, was oh. fa- famously adapted by Stanley Kubrick in the 1960s. Uh, yeah. And that was co-authored by Vladimir Nabokov. He co-wrote the screenplay with Kubrick. And uh, he kind of brings... It's like he's rewriting the whole thing from scratch. Mm. You watch Kubrick's Lolita, and it has almost like I mean, it has the same premise. It's you know this um, kind of do- I don't even want to call it a doomed romance because that makes it sound like something really gross. Sound a little bit more palatable. It's a the romantic fantasies of a pedophile essentially. Yeah, uh, trying to sort of make his impulses seem normal and romantic in the real mm. world, and um, the movie obfuscates the sex so much Mm -hmm. that I thought watching that first movie that they were going to come to the end and it turns out nothing had happened sexually between them at all. That it was all just implication and jokes. Like it was going to be this broad slapstick comedy. And an idiot is there's a slapstick scene in Kubrick's Lolita where they're trying to like unfold a Murphy bed and it just keeps popping. It's like, what the, what is this doing in Lolita? This is, this has nothing to do with anything. Adrian Lynn made another version of that in 1997, which is way closer to the book mm. and whether or not one is a better movie can be argued but I'm I talking think, about it, is either yeah. one better than the book that's my question oh golly no that, um, my, my okay. question was is there one that is I'm not talking about better adaptation yeah. I'm talking about mm. you've read the book uh-huh. whether or not the book is good the movie is in your estimation a better experience a better a told story better told story like, like a classic work of literature that was adapted better doesn't even have to be classic film. just, just okay. a, a movie that is better mm. than the source material you know what I'll say this mm. um, going back to Shakespeare and this is this is more another play I'm not right. sure if this counts I'll let, but, it, um, I'll let it slide because we're talking about the point yeah. is it existed in another medium yeah. not existing in this medium um, Titus Andronicus is not that great a play I feel like Julie Taymor's film version Titus is more movie than that play deserves. Mm. She really, really put every sort of creative impulse she had. It's like she, uh, Julie Taymor made that movie as if she was never going to have a chance to make another movie again. Which I feel is so, the best way to make a movie. Yeah, she good just, or bad. She, she just went for broken that thing, and, <laughs> yeah. and you know, just like the Southland Tales approach. Exactly. It's yeah. like a, what, there, there's, there's a, a classic, or it comes something interesting. There's an orgy in the middle. It's not in the play. Who cares? <laughs> Just throw it right in the middle there. And there uh, she tells a really great story. There's there's this like orgy scene in the middle of Titus, and uh, they're and like they're besieged by arrows, and an arrow comes in and like pops the breast of this gigantic inflatable busty mermaid thing that's like floating around in the pool. I love this movie so much. And, and yeah, she's she's talking about filming this scene, and they're filming out like in the wilds of Italy somewhere, like just far away from civilization. And they had to build this inflatable busty mermaid. And she has this wonderful. She said she took a picture of it. I wish I could see it. Of like yeah. a bunch of like seventy year old Italian men who are working on crew carrying this big gigantic busty mermaid across this barren landscape. <laughs> It's like, like, it's, well, it's, it's like a Fellini film yeah. all of a sudden. And, <laughs> well, I guess with the brass, yeah. it would be. But, but yeah, that 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 play is is 
It was Shakespeare's biggest hit. Uh, and it was was all, it really? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Titus Andronicus was his yeah. biggest hit because it's so sensational. It's, it's very lurid. Yeah, yeah, lurid. It's got mutilation and sexual assault and cannibalism, yeah, cannibalism yeah, and betrayals. It's crazy. And, yeah, infidelity and cutting off your own hand. It's really, really wonderful. And uh, there was a way to just turn that into a trauma movie. Like you could yeah. just do revel in the gore. And, and indeed, Julie Taymor does. But oh, she yeah. turns it into this like penny arcade nightmare. <laughs> like she, she like just goes for broke, gives everybody all these weird costumes and everybody just not overplays, like but plays to house, the wall. Yeah, yeah. Fun. It's, it's, it's yeah, this, fun. <laughs> almost this close to being Hellraiser 2. You know, it's... it's <laughs> It, it's really, really terrific. And I think Julie Taymor read the script, said, what can I do to, to jazz up Shakespeare? And I think she succeeded. So yeah. I'll, I'll give you that as can an we, example. Can I just say it's a crime that Julie Taymor hasn't made more movies? Well, she did Across the Universe, which a lot of people really love. Um, um, a lot of people did. hate that one, yeah, but I, I, I'm rather fond of it. Even she also it's, it's did a, a version of The Tempest, which was unfortunately was quite bad. I, uh, yeah, it wasn't good, was it? Like, which I is weird Mirren because... Mirren played Prospera, doesn't she? Yeah, she, she was good. They, they changed her name to Prospera, but yeah, um, like, she, she plays Prospera. Fine. Now. I'm fine with that. Good casting is an yeah. early role from Felicity Jones. She plays, um, not Ariel, um, uh, Miranda... Is that right? Yeah. The... Prospero's daughter. Um, yeah, I forget the name of the character. Yeah, it's it's Ben, ben Wishaw well, played Ariel. Frankly, um, I don't think it's his best play in a lot of ways, and I think well, it's, her, it's a her really version, weird problematic play. Yeah. And I think it's she, also just a meandering narrative. It's a lot of yeah. her movies, just people wandering around an island, and the island is desolate. <laughs> it's not a very interesting island. No, to look it's at. like yeah. I mean, she's always worked in theater. She's always preferred theater. She's not a you know. I, I think she would her, herself say she's not a, a film director. So I think it's. Yeah. It's fine if she wants to stay in the medium, but yeah, I think uh, I just I just thought great, she was great. Great literature is great literature, and it's it's that medium. Uh, it became great in that medium for a reason because it is great in that medium, and sometimes a great film can do justice. I did did just mention uh, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, for yep. instance. Both the very film and the book are are very very good. Um, there's really great versions of Wuthering Heights out there, and Jane Eyre, and and, and the new Emma is really terrific. Um, there's fantastic miniseries that cover Dickens incredibly oh, look, there's thoroughly. There's a ton of great adaptations. There's a ton of great adaptations. Some um, of them faithful, some of them mm. not. Some of them just cut a lot out. Train Spotting is a fantastic adaptation. Mm. The book is a collection of vignettes. Mm. They cut out some of the most exciting and interesting vignettes. They just were about characters. Mm. They just didn't make it into the movie. Mm. But I, I think, you know, you can have a great piece of cinema and a great piece of literature, and they can both be great, or one can be greater uh, than the other. And one not may not necessarily reflect on one another, on the other. And I think as we move forward in history and video games sort of start to gel a little bit more in the popular consciousness as uh, maybe a, a more important art form. I think they that, are, and you're um, not noticing. Well, because yeah, I told you, I'm not paying attention. Well, I'm, just, um, I'm just, for the sake of clarity, because I know people are like, hey, Last of Us, yeah. and a lot of other things as well. Mm. Yeah, I think they are, but okay. yeah. It's you're you're it's, you're, it's you're not, not following the media. Yeah, not fine. not from not from where I'm standing. Yeah, just, which, which is facing away from the media. Yeah, but, so, but um, I'm standing right next I'm to so, you, and I'm going to make it the comment. So. Okay, uh, but 
I think we're going to reach a point where we're going to have more video, more film adaptations of video game stories. Some might be great. Some might not be so great. Yeah. Uh, they might continue to suck at infinitum. Who's to say? Yeah. The point is... Uh, well, all the point is fine, we're going to reach a point where the film is going to feel like a minor adjunct of the size of the game because games are such a big business now mm. and are gaining such credence as art forms in their own right now that the film isn't going to be seen as a necessary element to bring the game to the masses because the game is already there. Yeah. That's my point. No, no, no. Yeah. And, and yeah. I agree with that in general. Yeah. But I also think that there are good adaptations oh, out there. And it's just weird that there have been so many video game adaptations and the best we've gotten is like... Rampage. Yeah. Uh, Rampage <laughs> or the new Tomb Raider or mm. even Mortal Kombat. These are not all-time classics. No, They're fun. No, no. And some of them are they, arguably they, good. They, they might be okay at best and that's all we can really hope yeah, for. Yeah, like we've never had... They're, we've had great movies... Based on the idea of video games, yeah, like, like w- war games or uh, yeah, that's a great one. Uh, Last yeah. Starfighter, I love okay, it. Okay, yeah, Last um, Starfighter is another yeah. one. Some movies that even take video game mechanics, like Edge of Tomorrow, mm. or even and uh, this is something that I've gotten shit for mm. uh, when I pointed out that 1917 plays like a video game, and other people mm. in the online sphere. Have well, you you weren't the only one. A lot of critics no, a lot noticed of, that, but yeah. I I pointed it out, and people jumped down my throat saying you are denigrating 1917 by comparing it to video games. First off. You're denigrating video games by saying that in the first place. But secondly, uh, Sam Mendes has even said in interviews that he was inspired to tell the movie that way by watching his kids play Red Dead Redemption. Mm-hmm. It's, he yeah, was, which is which is a video game. Yeah, yeah it's I'll, very specifically. Like, what if we followed the, the, a character the, yeah, the way the video game does? He and, did that. That's it's based off of mm-hmm. video game storytelling mechanics. Mm-hmm. 1917. I, I what didn't make my best of the year list. It's a very good film. That's basically a video game movie. Mm. It is. It's that. Because mm. his remember I talked about the sense of immediacy you only get from video games? That's what 1917 was striving for, and at its best, it did it. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that's Fine. a good video game movie. We just not based it's, on an I, actual video game, like a specific mm. video game. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying, if you want, like, oh, we're having a good video game movie. 1917, done. Good video game movie. Yeah. All right, uh, that is it. Which is actually, uh, this is going to be a short one. And we ended up going for, what, like an hour and a half? Yeah, we were going to do like 45 minutes, and we ended up doubling that. So uh, we want to thank everybody for writing in. Please continue to write in. We will have another regular episode of We've Got Mail this week. Uh, You can write us in at letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We take your questions, concerns. um, We give give out recommendations. Some people have asked us to, like, you know, rank all the Jason movies, like, off the top of your head. We've done that. Uh, You can also talk about anything at all. Hmm. We're cool. We're, we're, we're doing our best. We wanna, we wanna, <laughs> trying to provide you with the content yeah, you deserve during during this rough time for everybody. We're all trying to reach out, mm-hmm. and uh, we're we're trying to reach back. So, uh, letters at criticallyacclaimed dot net. Uh, if you're not already a Patreon subscriber, you can join us patreon.com slash criticallyacclaimed network. Uh, there's a ton of exclusive content that is already there. Yeah, like we're putting out new stuff all the time. We're trying to be as productive as we possibly can. Uh, during this time when, frankly, we don't have a lot of other gigs right now, so there's no excuse. We're putting as many podcasts as yeah, we yeah. can, uh, including a lot of exclusive stuff on the Patreon. But even if you join right now, there's backlog. There's backlog on almost every tier. 
on the $1 tier, we've got a couple episodes of the Firefly podcast. Uh, on the $5 tier, we got a ton of episodes of the Cancel Too Soon monthly movie. On the $10 tier, we've got episodes of All Our Yesterdays and Only the Best. On our $20 tier, uh, we've got some commentary tracks. I'm actually going to record some more of those because we're a little behind. Yeah, on sometimes that. The, sometime this week. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, everyone, stick around. Thank you so much for contributing. If you can, if you can't, uh, it would really help us out if you left us a review wherever you found us. Uh, mention us on social media. Tell your friends if they're looking for good podcasts. If you think we're a good podcast. Hmm. We don't want you to lie. If, uh, if you hate our podcast, recommend us to your enemies. <laughs> I love you very much. <laughs> um, and, of course, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. And together we are at Critic Acclaim. Uh, we hope everyone is staying uh, safe. We hope everyone is following... Uh, the best protocols in order to, for us all to get through this global pandemic as safely as possible. So uh, please take care of yourselves. We care about every single one of you. Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. <laughs>